welcome to Health Hackers. I am starting the show with a shout out to this week's episode sponsor, Chuckling Goat, the gut health experts. They make probiotic kefir and skincare products while also offering gut microbiome testing and nutrition advice, all from a family farm in Wales. I've been buying their kefir for over two years now, and I actually wrote about why I drink it in an article that you can read on the Health Hackers website. Go to healthhackers.uk and search Chuckling Goat. I've even had the company's founder and gut health author, Shan Nix Jones, appear as a guest on Health Hackers last year. Check out episode 14 to see that. So it's a pleasure to have the brand now sponsor an episode of the show. Thank you, Chuckling Goat. And you can find out more about their products at chucklinggoat.co.uk. Now it's time to jump straight into this week's Health Hackers guest interview. Welcome to Health Hackers episode 39. Dr. Mitu Steroni joins me this week, speaking to us from Hong Kong, where she's based. Mitu is the author of Stress Proof, a scientific solution to protect your brain and body and be more resilient every day. The book is full of practical, evidence-based steps for protecting yourself against stress and its effects. Me Too spent years combing through hundreds of research papers and clinical studies before condensing her findings into a manual, which then became her book, Stress Proof. Some of its contents is surprising. For example, who knew smelling the scent of a lemon could help you to chill out? So stay with us to hear about that and many more handy anti-stress tips. Me too, welcome. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I have been really enjoying the book. I listened to the audio version and it meant that I kept stopping in the street to, to pause it and write down notes in my phone of all these fascinating tips that I just didn't want to forget. Uh, but before we jump into how we can make ourselves stress-proof, Tell me a quick bit about your backstory because your PhD is in neuro-ophthalmology. So tell us what that is and then how you moved into the work you're doing now with stress. Okay, so neuro-ophthalmology is a branch of ophthalmology. So it's a branch and of neurology. So it's, it's about, the, it's, it's studying the part of the brain that deals with vision um, and also the part of the eye that deals with vision. Um, the jump wasn't really into stress. It was more like a parallel slide. <laughs> I had lots of people coming to me um, outside of my work and saying, you know, I have this, I have that. Do you know anything for stress, etc., etc.? And I really didn't. And then I sat down and I thought, you know, there is so much literature out there. Why don't I see what there is that has evidence to back it up? I had lots of um, gaps in my own knowledge because I assumed that at least the way I, um, when I was a professional, um, the way that I led my life was to think that, you know, stress is something psychological and um, some people have greater resilience than others. Some people are more affected than others. But it's a very much a psychological phenomenon. And then when I looked into the research, I discovered that actually it has some real physiological manifestations that span different organs and organ systems and we most of us don't realize how all of these systems are connected and if we actually look at chronic stress across this panorama we realize there is a great deal of of scientific research behind it that we can actually actively use and relate to day-to-day -day life so why do we need to learn how to handle stress? How bad is it really for us? So stress is a very 
it's a very broad word and we need to first break it down to define what we're talking about. When we talk about stress in our day-to-day life, we talk about the very acute kind of psychological reaction we have to certain situations. And that psychological reaction is accompanied by a physiological reaction, so by a hormonal reaction. Um, And that is something that we have evolved to have because it saves us. It's always saved our life. Um, And that's a good thing because at that moment, we're prepared for for, for as many possible types of danger that may be awaiting us behind uncertainty. So that's the acute stress reaction, and that's a good thing. But we have since realized that as our lives have changed and as our environment has changed, for many of us, our brains are essentially in a very broad way, putting it in a very broad way, keeping that stress pedal pushed on. So if you, st- if you have an acute stress reaction and then you recover from it, that's okay. But if you have an acute stress reaction and you keep that button pushed on, then you have a large sequence, a sequelae of, of events that stretch from your metabolism into your hormonal system, into your, of course, your psychology. And all of these downstream events that carry on when that stress pedal stays pushed down become harmful. And one of the reasons is that the moment you experience stress in a short, sharp bout, the effects of the the very same hormones, the very same mediators of that acute stress response change when you prolong the stress response. So for instance, cortisol, which is which most of your listeners will, will know of as a stress hormone, it has a non-linear effect. So a small bout of cortisol has a completely different effect to a longer bout of cortisol. And cortisol can also prime the system for something that's about to happen. So all these little kind of cocktails of chemicals and reactions that an acute stress response that's there to help us induces all of these reactions, they go, in a way of speaking, they go awry if that stress response stays turned on and then it becomes harmful. There was one part of the book, um, well, there were many parts of the book that shocked and surprised me, but there's one part where you say that the stress of public speaking actually creates physical cracks in our intestines um, and also long bouts of exercise can do the same thing and and I think you've uh, described some of that about the intestines on your website too and I just wondered it how does this happen so if you think about it just taking a step back what is a stress response so in essence a stress response is like an emergency button that your brain presses um, and it presses it as soon as it is faced with uncertainty because that uncertainty is hiding danger. The brain is a predictive organ. It needs to be able to predict what's about to happen next. If it cannot predict what's about to happen next, or it predicts a threat to your system, it presses this all-encompassing systemic response, and that's your acute stress response. One of the things that happens when you become acutely stressed is you get a surge in inflammation. Now, it's very temporary and it doesn't cause you any harm as long as your stress response 
ends. But that inflammation is one of the one of the features of how a stress response is there to protect you, to protect us. Because we've evolved to have a stress response to save ourselves from predators. So if in a state of acute threat, you have a cut in your system, an animal bites you or something, you will have germs entering your body through that gash. And that's why having a surge of inflammation at that point protects you. Now, another, another thing that happens as part of that whole spectrum is the walls of the intestines become more permeable. The colloquial way of saying it is it becomes leaky. We have a leaky gut. But really, in essence, what, means, what it means is that the walls of the intestines are sealed. It's, one way to imagine it is like a brick wall. And if you create temporary fissures, temporary cracks, temporary gaps between those bricks, so the cement, the plaster, this cement between the bricks disappears, what happens is the contents of the intestines, of the intestinal lumen, of, the, of, the, of what's inside the gut, can more easily go into the bloodstream, can go through those cracks and into the body. And we don't know why we've evolved to have that, but one theory is that that allows us to absorb nutrients at a faster pace and that's why that's a temporary um, situation to be in during an acute stress response the downside of that is that we harbor um, we have a lots of microorganisms in our gut and many of them are good um, well most of them are good the ecosystem as a whole is is is, uh, is is we've evolved to have an ecosystem that protects us. So the whole array of microorganisms in our digestive tract is there for a protective purpose, but it has different players within it. And if you, if some of these players multiply, or if some of these players extend into our body instead of staying inside the gut, they pose a threat. So when this intestinal permeability or otherwise known as gut leakiness, happens, even if it is temporary, it increases the risk of these, um, endo, th these kind of these bad, unhelpful, um, inflammation-triggering components of bacteria from leaking into our bodies. So that's why we have that response. So leaky gut is all to do with inflammation then, by the sounds of it. And there's another thing that really surprised me was when you said that some cases of major depression are treated more successfully with anti-inflammatories rather than antidepressants. So does that mean that depression is all about inflammation too? So um, just to quickly go back, um, a leaky gut is the intestinal permeability. We don't know exactly why that happens from stress. We know that it happens and we know that it's temporary, but the side effect of it is if it stays like that, then it can introduce agents or pathogens from inside our gut, inside the intestinal lumen, into our bloodstream, and that can trigger inflammation. So if it becomes prolonged, it can become harmful. So your next question about inflammation and depression. Now, it's very important to realize that depression is a, is a clinical disorder, and it has a, it, it has a whole range of um, of phenotypic manifestations so it has it's a very very broad 
clinical disorder. And what there and it is absolutely not true that all all depression is caused by inflammation. It's also absolutely not true that all everyone suffering from depression needs to be treated with an anti-inflammatory. What is true is that there is a subset, a subgroup of people with depression who have, for whom, um, if you test their blood, they show signs of raised inflammatory markers. And this small, this very select subgroup of individuals respond very well to anti-inflammatory treatment. In some cases, better than antidepressant treatment itself. But this is one subgroup of patients with depression. But if we extend that idea further, the link between inflammation and depression is actually a, it's not a new one. It's, 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 a, it's a very well-observed one. There is something called the sickness syndrome or the sickness disorder, which you know, most scientists will have discovered in their, in their, um, in their lab rats, for instance. If you, put, you, know, if you, take, a, if you take a mouse and you, you, the, you put the mouse through um, inflammation, you make the mouse acutely inflamed, it gets very withdrawn. On a day-to-day -day basis, if many of us uh, might recollect that if you, you know, if you think of the last time you were down with a very bad cold, the days before, or even at the time that you're down with a bad cold or even the flu, you feel very low. You feel very, very down and very low. So there is this link between mood and inflammation. And Outside of the, uh, the topic of depression, animal studies have already shown that when you induce inflammation, there is a rise in inflammatory markers in certain, well, in, obviously around the body, but also in certain very select areas of the brain. And these areas of the brain correspond to the pathways that are active when we when we feel motivated, when we feel pleasure, when we want to do things. And these inflammatory markers, the fact that they're found in these motivational pathways, um, further explains the link between this sickness syndrome and inflammation. Because evolutionarily, if we think about it, if you were inflamed, if you were you know, recovering from a wound from a recent expedition, then it's best that you stay there and you recover and you're not motivated to explore, you know, for more food or explore an unknown, unknown area because you'll be attacked again and you need your resources to, to run away. So it's best to sit there, concentrate on yourself, don't be motivated to do more, recover first and then go on another hunt. Fascinating. So what's all this about a single trip to the sauna may reduce symptoms of depression for at least six weeks. So that was a, I was so, um, so surprised. Um, as you know, I'm sure as surprised as many of the readers will be by that study. Yes. So there is a study um, that I've quoted in my book that a, a single um, episode, single sauna session reduced the, symptoms of depression in the people who participated in the study for up to six weeks. Um, now, what's very interesting is that we actually don't really know why. Um, and, and 
in a way, that's that's not such a bad thing because we know that the study clearly shows, and we need more studies to be able to be sure, but it clearly shows that there is something that people can actively do. Um, but on the other hand, as to why the sauna, why increasing your core temperature on just one occasion would have that effect, that remains a mystery. Now, in the book, I've discussed some other parallel findings which explain parts of why this might happen. So one very interesting um, study, which I've uh, described in my book, relates to um, the relationship between core body temperature and thyroid hormone. And it, I describe a study um, that was done uh, actually from the UK, from Cambridge, which, which found a relationship between the rise in core temperature and the amount of free thyroxine. So thyroid, thyroxine is a, is a hormone related to your thyroid um, regulation. And it's usually found in the bloodstream in a bound form. So it's usually kind of, you can imagine it as it's traveling around in its car. And when the core body temperature rises, thyroid, this thyroxine hormone emerges out of its car. So there's a little surge of thyroxine in the bloodstream. And outside of this context, we know that a little surge of thyroxine can elevate mood, it induces euphoria, it makes people more joyful. So that's an interesting avenue to pursue. Um, but truthfully, as I pointed out in the book, we don't know exactly why this one single trip to the sauna would have this effect. There are also other um, molecules involved which are showing, which you can relate to the effect um, of visiting a sauna or elevating your core temperature. Heat shock proteins are one example, and I've referred to them as well. But yeah, it's a very, very interesting. Um, it's a very interesting study. In the book, you talk about our rational brain and our emotional brain. Explain to us what the difference is and why we should care about that. So, I've used the terms rational and emotional, um, as I've pointed out in the book, as in a very reductionist way, just to picture how it actually works, because actually in reality, there is no such thing as a rational brain or emotional brain. Our brain is a very complex system and parts of the brain that mediate cognition are also involved in emotion and vice versa. But I've used that approach because it's a good way of just thinking about it. Um, and really what I've referred to is the fact that you can see the brain as a as a very large company, okay? And the, the company has a very good, very efficient CEO that sits at its head. And this CEO is, in a manner of speaking, and again, I'm really re reducing what actually happens to very simple um, ideas here. The CEO, very broadly speaking, sits in the prefrontal cortex, so the front of our higher brain. And this region or this CEO, this imaginary CEO, conducts the rest of the brain like an orchestra. So it has the wind instruments coming in at just the right time. It has you know, the, the soloist coming in at just the right times. So the whole brain kind of is in synchrony, listening to what its goal is and trying to achieve the goal in a very synchronous manner. And this CEO sitting in the region of the prefrontal cortex is the CEO 
who guides the corporation towards achieving that goal. And this guidance is called self-regulation. It's self-regulatory. Now, when the CEO is making sure that the brain is in this very focused goal-directed mode, operating to a distant goal, not responding to little things as they come by, but having a goal in mind and really putting all resources together in a coordinated manner to achieve that goal, that is, in a manner of speaking, a rational mode of operating. Now, if you are in the middle of a jungle and there are wild animals everywhere, at that moment, if you have any goals, you probably won't reach them <laughs> if there is a, an animal lurking behind. So at that moment, your brain has to flip its strategy. So the CEO has to say, okay, everyone, every department, we're going to do things slightly differently. We're going to respond at the moment. We're going to respond to things as they appear right now. And in doing so, it will also say, okay, you, neurons, departments who are managing emotional, um, emotional arousal, you are going to be on high alert because we need you to be able to tell us if there is danger, to be able to warn us of danger so that, so that we know that danger might be approaching before it actually approaches. A brain in that state is called a stimulus-driven brain. And that state correlates with being very emotionally aroused, emotionally reactive. Emotional reactivity is high and it also has a negativity bias. So that state of operating, in essence, is an emotional brain way of operating because your emotional pathways are given precedence there. And just to bring that back to real life situations, if you are a soldier in combat, and you are in, act, in, a, in a situation of active combat, you cannot think of your long-term goal of, I don't know, learning how to speak Russian, just a random language, okay? At that moment, you're sitting there in the middle of a combat zone. You need to respond to the moment. You need to have high emotional arousal. You need to be able to perceive movement more than anything else. You need to be very aware of small distractions. Now, if on the other hand, you are say a writer writing a book, at that moment you are concentrating on what you're doing and say you have a 5 p.m. deadline. You cannot afford to be distracted by noise or be distracted by emotions or let your mind wander to things you don't want it to wander to. You don't want to see any movement. You don't want to hear your, 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 your name being called. There, your goal is long term. So in that state, your, rash, your, your brain is rational. So your rationality, your rational brain is engaged. Whereas in the state of being the combat soldier who relies on their emotional reactivity for their life, you have to be in an emotional state. There, your emotional brain is running the show. Does that make sense? Yes. And what I took from the book, and correct me if this is wrong, is that the emotional brain is, in a reductionist terms, the emotional brain is the one that interprets scenarios or imagines the worst in a scenario, even if it's not real. Uh, and that causes us to feel stressed, anxious, and out of control. 
That's correct. That's correct. So what happens is if you're in a, if you have a healthy brain or healthy, if you feel unstressed, then you should be operating in a goal directed mode and just occasionally dipping into situations where you have to be stimulus um, responsive. So you have to be in an emotional brain mode. Now, it's very important for the brain to flexibly move between these two states. If you are in a state of chronic stress, in acute stress, your emotional arousal, so you, you assume the, your brain assumes the state of that soldier. So your emotional arousal is, is high. Your emotions, your vigilance is, is high. You are on high alert and you have a strong negativity bias, which means you assume the worst before confirming it. In a state of acute stress, that's okay, that can save your life. But if you are going about your day-to-day -day life in a state of prolonged stress, where you're not recovering from the stress, then your brain stays in that mode. If that combat soldier were to come in to, you know, walk down, I don't know, walk down Oxford Street tomorrow in that mode, every car going past the, the, the noise of the car would shake, would shake your, your vigilance systems, shake your emotional arousal systems. So you need to be able to detach from that state in order to be, in order to no longer emotionally react to those situations with such an, you know, a negative emotional bias. So in chronic stress, you stay like that. Your brain doesn't flip back into a calm, goal-directed, rational mode. So in a, a state of chronic stress, you stay emotionally vigilant. And you mentioned the um, assuming the worst before actually confirming it. Our brain operates, even when it is rational, it operates using a great deal of assumption and guesswork. It likes to predict the future. And this prediction mechanism is made more efficient at times of danger so that you can save on time. So you have a very low sensitivity, sorry, very high sensitivity. So you detect things that you perhaps wouldn't otherwise detect, but you have a very low specificity for danger. So you assume things are dangerous even when they're not. And that is why chronic stress becomes such a damaging vicious circle. Because if you, are in a state of stress, you, you're, hit, you know, you're stuck in the traffic and that makes you stressed first thing in the morning. You then don't recover from that stress. So you stay in that stressed mode. Then every other little thing you'll encounter throughout your day, the rest of your journey, once you get to work, the way other people speak to you, the things they do and don't do or do or don't say, you make assumptions on this. And if you're operating in a stimulus-driven mode, your assumptions have a negativity bias. So you perceive situations to be more stressful than they are. And by doing that, you react again and again and again. And you wouldn't have had this flurry of repeated stress reactions if you'd only managed to recover from stress and not stay chronically stressed first thing in the morning. I think this is a problem so many of us have. So. Let's talk about tips for handling stressful encounters and how to get out of this vortex of negative thinking. Um, before we talk about the tips, if we could just define a stressful encounter so that people know that they could use these tips that we're about to discuss uh, following a situation which could be a hectic day at work or an argument, or maybe they could have witnessed something 
um, a bit upsetting. Would you agree that these are tips that they could use once we're about to discuss in all of those types of scenarios? Absolutely. So anything that, I mean, most of us will know what makes us stressed. Our hearts start racing. We start feeling anxious. Um, we may start feeling very, very uh, paranoid or afraid. So anything that's, that's a stressor will cause acute stress. So what would be the top strategies to employ immediately after a stressful experience so that we don't continue to overreact from our emotional brains for the rest of the day or the rest of the month or the rest of our lives? So I'd say my personal favorite, and I say it's my personal favorite because I've had feedback on just how effective it is. And I've seen it. I've seen how effective it is in other people is one very simple rule. So I'll, I'll explain it with an, um, with an example so it's easier. So if you imagine you're at work and you have a, um, a, a slightly unpleasant boss and at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning, you are called to see your boss. So you walk into their office, you close the door and then that boss bites your head off which you were sort of expecting. Now you stay in that office for exactly three minutes. And at the end of those three minutes, you open the door and you leave the room. Now your boss knows you've left the room. You know you've left the room, but does your brain know it's left the room? Going through that scenario has made you acutely stressed. When you're in a state of acute stress, you have a high degree of emotional reactivity. If the moment you leave that room, your mind revisits the memory, which is fresh and it's in dazzling technicolor and it's in really beautiful sound effects. As soon as your mind revisits what just happened, the memory is so fresh that it's very hard to acknowledge that it's already over and because the memory is so fresh the very same pathways in your brain that are active during the stress response continue to remain active for as long as you replay the scene so let's imagine you leave the office you go back to your chair and you sit down and you think i can't do anything now i need a cup of tea a cup of coffee whatever while you're sipping that cup of coffee or you're just sitting on that chair, you continue to replay that even further. So if we step back a bit, that stressful encounter took about three minutes. Now, your replaying the scene will have kept your brain circuits, stress-related circuits active, let's say for another 47 minutes, okay, or 57 minutes rather. So in total, it will have taken you an hour to recover from that stress response. If you have five such episodes during the day, in reality, you will have had 15 minutes of stress. But at the end of the day, because you have dwelt on it and ruminated about it, you will have had five hours of perceived stress. So the most striking thing, strikingly simple thing that you can do is as soon as you have a stressful encounter, and that includes all of the things you just mentioned earlier, 
you know, stuck in traffic, encounter with someone, etc. All of these, especially the psychological stresses. As soon as you have these episodes, and the episode is physically over, so you're walking out of the room, immediately immerse yourself in something that's so gripping, that's so intense, that your mind does not have time to wander and revisit the scene. And it sounds counterintuitive because most people go through stress and they want to relax. But actually, that's the one thing you should not do. Never, ever relax after a stressful encounter. And this has actually got some really interesting real-world implications. Um, a couple of studies which have actually been published since, I, since my book came out, one of them has shown that in the United States, um, when targeting a group of people with stress-related high blood pressure, giving those, this, this, in this one study, it was a randomized study, giving them cognitive therapy, cognitive-based stress therapy, of which learning how not to ruminate was one of the key features, drastically cut their blood pressure. And this is a day-to-day -day scenario where learning to ruminate had a visible physical effect on hypertension. So you see, this is a simple, tiniest behavioral switch that can have really wide-ranging, large implications. And also another angle to this is that one of the problems with stress research is that we all respond in a very different way because we are all living in a very different universe. Our brain is creating a perception of the world around us from the cues that we are exposed to, from the cues that we are attending to. So everyone's universe is slightly different, which means that what stresses you is going to be different or slightly different to what stresses me. And when we measure people's stress and what they're stressed by, Many studies suggest that it's perceived stress that really is the all-important marker. So, you know, if you, if you look around amongst your friends and colleagues, you'll find that some people do really well with stress, whereas other people become shaken with things which are maybe to you seem quite trivial. And the reason is that we are calibrated in slightly different ways but it's the perception of stress that really triggers the stress response. And here, the rumination on that one event is affecting your perception of stress because if you're taking an hour to recover, your brain is perceiving that the episode must have been really intense. It's so easy to say that we shouldn't ruminate, but we all do it so much. Um, what quick tips can you give us for stopping that rumination in its tracks? Well, we talk about the negative side to technology, to digital technology, but let's use its positive side. So most of us today have, have a phone. Um, so one very easy, simple technique, and just to be clear, this is, not a, this is not a treatment for stress by any means. All this does is cut short your period of rumination. So the moment your stressful reaction is over, immerse yourself in a really, really gripping game. Now, in my book, I've mentioned Tetris, but it doesn't have to be Tetris. It can just be something that has a component of interest and something that keeps you attached to it so your mind doesn't get a chance to wander. And Tetris is very good because it gives you an re instant reward so you feel motivated to do more. And you can also adjust the level of challenge to suit your needs. So you can make it more interesting if it's too boring or less interesting if it's too or less um, difficult 
because when things become too difficult, we find it very difficult to attach to them. So just do something really, really gripping. Now, other people also have different other different strategies so for instance you know some people go and work out some people leave the scene leaving the scene is also it's it's effective to a degree because when you leave the scene all the cues that remind you of what just happened are being left behind but of course your mind will continue playing over it so really the strategy is to leave the scene and grip your mind with something but doesn't that just mean you're going to delay the rumination i feel like if i had a stressful encounter with my boss and I came out of his office, and if I just distracted myself completely, then it would probably be a few hours later that I would begin the rumination, uh, so, which could be equally as damaging. So rumination per se, you are absolutely correct. Rumination per se is always negative rumination, not if you ruminate on things that are positive, but negative rumination is harmful. Um, but what this is doing is it's actually stemming the tide at that moment. So when you, the, in the seconds after an acute psychological stressful reaction, your emotional reactivity is on high alert and you are fueling the fire at that moment by dwelling on it and replaying it because your brain is essentially trying to trying to um, rationalize what just happened it's trying to solve the problem but the replay when your emotional reactivity is high fuels further emotional reactivity but if you distract your mind for a moment your emotional reactivity will climb lower and at that moment it will be easier slightly easier to control the rumination and to Please. actually rationalize what happens. So, and if, so really you just want to stem the tide in the immediate aftermath, and then perhaps later on you can process it from a more rational, lower stress state of mind. Because we often hear, you know, that you, if you go through something traumatic or stressful, that it, it needs processing, and that's why people encourage talking about it and uh, kind of sharing your feelings. So that's really interesting. If It's all about stemming the initial tide, really. Yes. So as I, as I described, it's not, this is not a therapy for stress. This is not in no way going to, um, going to dissolve the effect of that stress on you. All this does is it stems, as you say, stems the tide so that you can, you are then in greater, in a greater state, in a state of greater self-control. And when you're in a state of great, of greater self-control, your perception of the event itself will be different. So at that, from that point onwards, with greater self-control, if you revisit the scene, you will have less of a negativity bias. You will be able to be more rational. And in my book, for instance, I also describe a couple of other things that you should ideally do at that point, which is exercise. One of them is exercise, um, not at a very high intensity, ideally, because of, uh, another thing to remember is extreme exercise is of course a stressor but also extreme exercise in a highly emotionally volatile state can actually increase the risk of heart attacks um, so i advise moderate or low intensity exercise which has also been shown to lower cortisol at least in one study um, so going for a long walk or going for a, a gentle long jog at that moment can help as well because according to this one study can lower your cortisol even further and then of course I do describe describing writing down the event and then processing it in various cognitive behavioral therapy um, style um, you know style interventions like writing it down like 
going through the event from a third person perspective, like changing perspective, all of those. But all of those must happen to process what happens. But this is simply, as you say, stemming the tide. Yeah. And um, we should point out that none of this is personal medical advice or therapy. It's, it's really, your book is really, I feel, a manual of quick, useful tips that can help somebody get through everyday life stresses. Uh, let's talk about some others. So lemons, smelling lemons. Uh, we could go through some of these quite quickly because I know we've got to let you go. Um, but smelling lemons has been proven to help us chill out. Isn't that so interesting? I was a non-believer at first, and then I found the study, and then I found another one. I thought, well, I've got to put this in. Um, so one way of understanding it is um, it's nothing really to do with, with any kind of magic or anything that we don't understand. What we think may be happening is that the part of the brain that, pr that processes smell, your olfactory center, is located very near the parts of the brain that process emotion and memory. So, I mean, most of us will, will remember, will, will remember uh, using the part, but we'll, we'll, we'll be familiar with the fact that sometimes when you smell a smell, you certainly are reminded of a memory, of a pleasant memory of someone you might have met. And what is probably happening here is that some of these chemicals um, within the volatile lemon, com uh, lemon complex um, are acting on receptors in the part of the, in the, in the olfactory complex, in, in the part of the brain that processes smell. And having an effect that in some way dampens your stress response. So it is, it is extraordinary. And it may also be, it may be something that we've evolved to have. I don't know. I tried to look for other scents, but so far the I could only find a study on lemon. That's why I put the lemon study in. But yeah, it's been shown. And another was looking at nature, even if just a photograph could raise parasympathetic tone. So that would be helping us to calm down. That's right. So when you're in a state of chronic so stress is really mediated by two, again, I'm really reducing it here, but mediated by two kind of mechanisms. One is the, the electrical mechanism through the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, and the other is the hormonal mechanism. When you're in a state of chronic stress, even if your cortisol levels are normal, you could still be in a state of chronic stress because you have greater sympathetic drive compared to parasympathetic tones. Your sympathetic and parasympathetic are kind of two, in this context of stress, they, they oppose each other. They don't oppose each other in some other context. In the context of stress, they oppose each other. And if you're in a state of chronic stress, your sympathetic tone is higher. And you might have heard of HRV measurements, for instance, which is all the, which is very fashionable these days, heart rate variability measurements. So heart rate variability, for instance, is a marker of your parasympathetic, of your sympathetic parasympathetic balance. And what you want to do in a state of chronic stress is you want to reduce, you want to increase parasympathetic tone so that the sympathetic and parasympathetic tone, um, they're both balanced. And what the study you're referring to that I put in my book refers to is putting groups of people in these situations and then measuring their heart rate variability. And their heart rate variability we have to dilute the results a little bit so that they need to be processed because essentially, as I say, they reflect. You can, you can use calculations from heart rate variability to estimate the parasympathetic-sympathetic balance. And in this case, the parasympathetic balance was raised after putting them in this situation, viewing nature scenes. You also gave some nutrition pointers 
um, including eating yogurt and avoiding refined carbs and added sugar. Tell us a little, little bit about that. I know we're short on time. So um, the yogurt aspect um, I've put in there because there is now a great deal of research um, on the idea of uh, something called psychobiotics. I think the name was coined by, it was coined fairly recently by John Klein, but I'm not sure. Um, so the idea is that the, we're getting, there is, there is increasingly a lot of evidence that what happens in the gut doesn't stay in the gut. So the, the, whole wealth of um, microorganisms that are sitting in our gut, be they bacteria, fungi, phages, all of these, they are in some way, shape or form influencing what happens in the brain. And they do this through multiple routes. We haven't yet figured out all the routes, but some routes, for instance, involve keeping the lining of the gut wall healthy. Other routes involve processing the compounds that end up in the brain as neurotransmitters. So serotonin is one example. And there is, there is a great deal of evidence that although we don't know whether there is one super player or another super player in terms of gut bacteria, we know that treating the gut like a garden, like a healthy ecosystem, and nurturing as many kinds of species as possible in that garden is strongly, tightly correlated to measures of mental health and brain-related health. And one of the earliest, actually, proponents of this, which I, whom I mentioned in my book, um, Mechnikov, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on um, microorganisms, noticed a very long time ago that people who are very poor in a certain part of the world, in the Balkan states, n despite having a, a suboptimal nutrition, actually ended up living very long lives. And he found that one of the things they did was they ate lots of yogurt. Um, and since then, we know that yogurt contains lactobacilli, um, a particular group of uh, bacteria. And since this is, I'm referring to a study, you know, a very long time ago, but since then we know we have a wealth of evidence that um, from different branches of, of health, so whether we're talking about gut-related gut conditions or even um, conditions related to other parts of our metabolism or even to brain health, we know that certain, certain landscapes within the gut microorganisms correlate with certain pictures of, of disease or of illness. So the theory is that if we do all we can to nurture a healthy microorganism um, landscape, we will be pushing ourselves towards health. And this relates to stress because I mentioned also a couple of studies looking at perceived stress, looking at anxiety levels, subjective anxiety levels, where giving um, volunteers certain combinations of probiotics or even yogurt, milk-related, fermented milk-related products, and I refer to a couple of studies from Japan, um, actually has very positive effects on their perception of stress and on their perception of anxiety. And another you know, line to this is, of course, the um, condition irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, which is strongly related to stress. And we now know that IBS also can be addressed in many settings very beneficially by addressing the microorganisms inside the gut. So there are all these different threads that I include yogurt there 
um, because of the studies that have been done on yogurt, um, and also because it's 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 consistently one of the media that is used for for studies all around the world, looking at beneficial effects on gut micro microbiota. And you also recommend uh, or suggest avoiding refined carbs and added sugar. But what interested me um, was that you said we should get enough salt because a lot of us are afraid of salt. Uh, but there was a study showing that we need a high amount of salt. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it's very important to, to always appreciate context here. So um, my, when I'm describing this, I'm really referring to a healthy individual. So I'm not in, referring to an individual who is a, currently a patient who's undergoing treatment for anything. When you are not being treated for anything, when you have no medical condition, your parameters of normal are different to someone who is ill. So context is very important. And in this case, I refer to a study which shows that, yes, if you take populations or you take small groups of people and you put them through salt deprivation, it has an effect on their stress reaction. And normalizing sodium mutes this effect. So getting having normal levels of salt, not excessive salt and not too low salt, so having a normal level of salt intake um, is the solution in that situation. I see. Me too. Thank you for going over time with us. I really appreciate it. There was just so much to pack in and we still didn't get to discuss binaural beats, oxytocin and flow state, but um, hopefully people will buy your book and they can read all about it in there. Um, tell people where they can find you on social media so they can follow you. Thank you. So first of all, thank you so much for having me again. Um, you can follow me on, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter, at Steroni Mitu. I also have a website, um, which is my name, www.mitusteroni.com, and there are links to the book there. And I'm also um, less frequently, but still there on Facebook and Instagram. Fantastic. I will put links to all of your social media accounts in the article on healthhackers.uk. Me too. Thank you very much. And thank you, YouTube listeners and viewers. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you and speak to you again next time. Bye-bye.